Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking with Michael Lynch, the author of In Praise of Reason. Michael Lynch is professor of philosophy at the University of Connecticut and the author of Truth in Context, an essay on pluralism and Objectivity and True to Life, Why Truth Matters, both published by the MIT Press. Michael Lynch, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Well, thanks so much for having me. So is it fair to say that part of the paralysis in the political system of the United States is due to uh, an abandonment of reason? I think so, yes. But it goes even deeper, I think, than that, uh, just an abandonment of reason. I mean, look, our cultural disagreements have gotten so deep now, I think, that we now disagree over what even counts as a reason. I mean, uh, think about it this way. I mean, there's a what I would think of as like a dirty little secret of the culture wars is that debates over matters like evolution or certain aspects of our history aren't just about evolution or the historical facts. They aren't just disagreement over the facts, period. They're disagreements increasingly over how to decide on what the facts are. They are debates about which methods and sources to trust uh, over the very principles of rationality, I guess you'd say. What I call in the book epistemic principles, principles tell us which sources and methods are trustworthy. And that seems to be a real problem, the fact that our disagreements are increasingly not just about values, they're not just about facts, they're about very basic first principles. Why is it a problem? Because in democracy, you know, we often have to make joint decisions about what to do. Uh, we, we have to decide what to put in our textbooks, right, uh, what to include in. And while we might all say, well, you know, we want to include the facts, we have to decide, well, which 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 of these claims are the facts? And if we can't agree on what the best methods are for figuring out what the facts are, we're hardly going to be able to agree on the facts themselves. And if we can't agree on what the facts are about, let's say, our history or uh, certain natural facts about the world, those sorts of disagreements are going to eventually put us in a sort of state of paralysis about all sorts of other decisions we have to make. So I, get, I was going to say in that question of facts, I mean, is it that, we'll take, a, we'll take an example that you gave, evolution. Is it just that, as you see it, the people that are arguing for and people that are arguing against evolution, when, when they use the term evolution, what they're defining, and depending which camp you're in, are completely different things. So by definition, they're not going to be able to come to an agreement because each side has a fundamentally different sense of what that term means. And I, again, I use evolution as an example. You could probably pick a lot of other terms that could fit in that slot where I used evolution. Sure. I think, obviously, that's going to be part of it. Um, I think that sometimes we get... Uh, off on the wrong foot on debates, culturally-laden debates like that, uh, just for the reason that you just mentioned, that because you know people have different senses of what they're talking about when they talk about evolution. I mean, for example, sometimes you know, with regard to that uh, debate, sometimes uh, you know people will talk about denying evolution when the, what they really mean is that they're skeptical about natural selection or the the process or the mechanism, which has uh, uh, been uh, invoked by um, biologists now for uh, and scientists for centuries to explain the process of why uh, species change over time, which we might call evolution. And that sort of semantic issue can cause people to go awry uh, right from the get-go. Another uh, push-button word on, on this is theory. People often say, well, this or that is just a theory, so we shouldn't include it in our textbooks. But of course, Often scientists, when they talk about theories, what they mean is 
well, it's an explanation. And, of course, once you put it that way, you realize, well, there are some, some explanations are good and some are not so good, some are better than others. And uh, once you realize that uh, when a scientist calls something a theory, what they're saying is that's an explanation for some phenomena, then it becomes uh, less, less bizarre to say, well, we, of course we want to include our theories in our textbooks because we want to include our best explanations in our textbooks. But, I mean, going back to the, the point I was talking about before with facts, I think that although you're right, Chris, that we sometimes just get into these disagreements because of the semantic decisions we make early on or confusions we get in, it, it's, it's not just that, because often people can, dis, you know, can continue to disagree, obviously, I think you'd agree, even when they do share the same definitions. And the, the really puzzling thing, I think, is that some of these definitions, I mean, some of these disagreements uh, continue to persist even, it seems, when we have a lot of the shared, same shared information. And why would that be? That's part of the questions that I'm, one of the questions that I'm interested in. And one of the things that I, I've come to decide is that, well, even though it may appear that we have the same information, really people are using different methods or standards for evaluating what information they do have. So if you think about another example, which is debates over what has in fact happened in our our, our our history. So go back to, let's say, the school board example, so, um, or the textbook example. Um, in Texas, for example, there's uh, a lot of debate over what information about U.S. Uh, uh, history um, to include or not to include in social science textbooks uh, in elementary school and in high school. And there are disagreements about certain facts, about what the Founding Fathers believed, what they didn't believe, what they in fact wrote, and what they didn't write. And there's also disagreements over whether which sources of information should be privileged in coming up with decisions about those facts. And that's pretty amazing when you think about it, that there can be disagreements about people, between people, over very practical issues. What to, what, what to put in these textbooks? Because disagreements become, on the surface, disagreements about facts, maybe some disagreements about semantics, but ultimately you keep pushing, and it looks like what they're really disagreeing about is whether certain sources of information are trustworthy or not. And once you get to that point, it's hard to know how to get farther, because if I don't trust your sources and you don't trust mine, then any sort of information that I give to, to sort of convince you that I'm right and you're wrong is going to be suspect, because you already it's being produced by sources that you don't trust. So, I mean, are there any, I mean, one of the parts of your book, uh, there are a lot of different things going on in this book, is this whole question about, well, which of these epistemic sources should we should we trust or should we place the most faith in? Uh, obviously, you read this book and you come down not wholly on the side of science, but understandable that the scientific method has been able to produce over time a sort of utilitarian value. Uh, but, right. but, the, but the counterpoint, which you also bring up in your book, is that there have been discussions that science itself is just as culturally produced as faith as any other system of knowledge. So I guess where, do, where is there a bedrock? And there, does there have to be a, a sort of bedrock I guess, statement, an, an axiomatic truth which is self-evident in order for reason to even be worth anything? No. Luckily, there doesn't have to be. 
because I don't think that we're going to be able to find that uh, epistemic magic bullet, that self-evident truth that's going to uh, uh, save us from uh, these sorts of disagreements that I was talking about. I mean, if anybody could have found these self-evident truths about uh, which methods are the most reliable, it would have been, I think, René Descartes, the great French philosopher and mathematician, who gave it an incredible try. I mean, Descartes was somebody who was gripped by the very same problems I'm talking about. In his day, disagreements over which sources to trust were hugely important, and uh, they had amazing cultural significance, uh, even more so, perhaps, than today. And what Descartes really wanted to do uh, was he wanted to... uh, show that the scientific method, as he understood it, was something that could be, in a sense, applied to itself, showed sort of self-verifying, self-evident in its application, and could produce, therefore, uh, some sort of certainty. I mean, that was a noble quest, but I don't think, for various reasons, that it's, uh, it was going to succeed, uh, or it, it didn't succeed. But where does that leave us? Where does it leave us with uh, the, the uh, does it mean that, you know, if, if we don't have these foundational bedrock truths, does that mean that we're just adrift, afloat on a sea of confusion? I don't think so. Uh, what we need to see is that uh, we can give reasons for our trust in reasons, and we can give objective ones in the following sense. We can give reasons that are objective in that they can be appreciated from multiple points of view. So what sorts of reasons can we give for our trust in, let's say, scientific reasons if they're not self-evident or, or you know, self-verifying um, uh, capital R reasons? Well, we can give practical reasons, reasons about uh, that, that, that show, as you say, partly utilitarian. But even more than that, we can give reasons for trusting science, even to people who are, are skeptical of science, by showing that uh, it's in... Uh, a variety of reasons, in their self-interest to uh, employ methods that are have the characteristics that scientific methods have, in particular that allow for transparency, repeatability, adaptability, all virtues that can be celebrated from a democratic point of view. And uh, so in a sense, I think what we can show is that science is more reasonable simply because, as a method, simply because it is put it bluntly, more democratic. You know, this book, I mean, we'll be talking, somebody looks at this, it's like in praise of reason, they look at the back, they see that, that you're a professor of philosophy. It's it's hard, but it's hard to get away when you read this book to think, it's this is really more a political book than anything else. It's a question about reason within a realm of democracy. And it made me wonder, you know, uh, as Americans, as remember the you know the Western culture, you know we kind of have we are the heirs of the Enlightenment, and the de- democratic experiment really took off in that point. But can you then turn around saying, well, the democratic experiment to some degree sowed the seeds of its own problem because once you allow this freedom of expression, in a way, you know, kind of a, I want to say a secular version of say a Reformation where everybody has a claim of truth, and all of a sudden you break down that I want to say social cohesion that you might have found in the United States during the colonial right. period that. It's just going to make it democracy not an untenable system, but certainly it's going to make it a lot harder for it to work over time. Oh, no, I, that's a really very astute point. And I think you're, uh, you're also right just by I mean, bringing up the fact that this is very much is a political book. It's a book uh, that is 
uh, connecting our, as you just did so so lucidly, uh, our problems with understanding the flourishing, how democracy can continue to flourish, and certain epistemological problems. I mean, you're you're right that you know if <laughs> democracy uh, does set, sow sow the seeds of its own problems by allowing and encouraging many different voices on. Uh, the topics that matter to us uh, politically. And those topics turn out to be not just the obvious political issues that we find politicians talking about, but the sort of methods and processes and principles that lie behind our very decisions to uh, uh, celebrate this political value or that political value. And so you're right. I mean, there's this issue is we need, put it this way, we need some sort of common currency of rationality in order to have meaningful democratic political discussions. If we don't have those common standards, then like in any conversation, which lacks some sort of common ground, things just, people get frustrated, they walk off, they throw up their hands, they decide they can't talk to these people. We need common standards. But part of the problem, of course, is that, uh, (laughs) <laughs> the very act of talking about uh, what to do what, what, and what is true, as I said before, about talking about facts, brings them to light the fact that we don't always share those common standards, that we don't actually have common standards. So the book is an attempt to argue for why some common standards, standards of rationality due broadly speaking to science, are ultimately politically the ones that we should be celebrating, and that's why it's absolutely essential for the health of our democracy that we encourage uh, uh, the learning of those methods, the absorption of those methods, so that we can actually have, uh, I think, a meaningful political discussion, a meaningful public debate in our country. Michael Lynch, the author of In Praise of Reason, thanks so much for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you for having me. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can always like us on our Facebook page, www.facebook.com mitpress, or you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at mitpress. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2012, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.